Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow from Tarleton State University, and we're glad you're joining us for this week's edition, especially following the general election and presidential election that was held earlier this week. And while we air the show on Sundays at noon, I do want to say here at the onset that uh, we do record this in advance. And so we are recording on Friday and knowing that there are still outcomes that we are awaiting uh, in the presidential election. And there are states that are still counting votes. And so going into the show, we know that there's probably going to be a few other developments today on Friday, as well as over the weekend uh, that are going to give us more uh, understanding of the outcome of this election, especially as it relates to the presidency. But that uh, doesn't uh, prohibit us from looking back at election day and uh, the results that we have had coming out uh, around the country and, and more specifically Texas uh, to be able to offer some initial uh, initial analysis of what uh, has taken place uh, with this 2020 election. And so today I welcome back to the show uh, my political roundtable uh, 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 colleagues here from Tarleton State, uh, Casey Thompson and Marcy Reynolds, both who are faculty in the Department of Government, Legal Studies and Philosophy here at Tarleton State. And we've the three of us, I hope you have as, as well as listeners, but we've enjoyed these roundtables because it gives us the opportunity to provide you with different perspectives on what is going on in the world of politics, both here locally, regionally, in the state of Texas and around the country. And what better time to do that than following a general election and a presidential elect election that only happens every uh, four years. And so I reached out to my colleagues here and asked them to join me so that we could offer you uh, that analysis. So we're going to get right into that because we've got a lot to cover. First, looking at the national level and looking at the election across the country, but also looking more specifically at Texas, where we do know the outcome. We can look at uh, the, the data, we can see what has happened here in Texas and, and really look into it and, and look both in the past and ahead and what it tells us about politics in the state and some of the things that, that may be happening uh, in the, the months and, and years ahead. So welcome, Casey, Marcy, it's glad, I'm glad to have both of you back with, uh, with us again on politics. So we're going to get right into this uh, first segment of the show. And, and really, I just want to say to both of you, uh, this is, it's not unusual. I mean, we, we can look back historically and see that the outcome of an election uh, takes time, that when you do have uh, an election that's as close as this, that the process of, of uh, processing ballots and, and determining the outcome, there. There, there could be legal challenges going forward as well that may prolong this. Um, we're, we're in a unique time in terms of it being a pandemic and the fact that voting options were expanded in some states and mail-in voting options uh, were ex uh, accessed by more people uh, because of some of those factors. And I, I, as we start here and we look at this and we look at, first of all, the turnout, so significant historically in, in elections, uh, we're gonna probably be somewhere between 140 to 150 million people uh, that voted in this election. Uh, I, I wanted to ask your thoughts about uh, kind of that level of engagement. I mean, what, what are some of the factors here that, that have made this both politically, and we, we are very much aware of some of those factors, but also just in terms of of the significance of the election itself happening uh, during this, during the pandemic, during this, this very challenging time and uh, during a time that is also, as we've talked about before, uh, there's a significant amount of partisanship and, and division across our country, as was demonstrated by this election. Uh, Marcy, do you have have some thoughts on that? What do you, what, what stands out to you as some of the, the mo more significant uh, things that have impacted this particular election. Well, thank you for asking me and thank you for having me on your program. I appreciate that. Um, I think, like you said, the turnout was high. And, and here in Texas, we see that about 66% of the registered voters cast their ballots here in the state. 
which is more than they have in the past several presidential elections. So turnout was higher among our youth as well. Um, it was higher than it was in 2016. So we see a real increase in youth turnout, which is really exceptional in general. So I think some of the reasons underlying that higher level of turnout have to do with what you mentioned. Um, number one, is we are in time of a pandemic and issues are very important to us, such as healthcare, but then also the economy. And from my perspective, I see that people have a choice pretty much between a candidate who is focused in on social policies and healthcare versus another candidate who was focused in on the economy. And so I think that mobilized a lot of people according to what they thought you know, was the most important of the two. And interestingly, we see that the economy resonated a lot among people, especially here in Texas. And so I think, I don't want to get ahead of myself, that we were predicted to have some sort of blue wave or, or something change in our state when that actually didn't happen. So I, I wonder if there's something about the economy and people are worried about jobs now and that spoke to people in different demographic groups who normally might not have turned out. And so they wanted to vote for the candidate who was really stressing the economy and jobs. So in the polling prior to the election day, uh, that that was the number one issue uh, among all voters, and it was the one in which Republicans edged ahead of Democrats a little bit in terms of their concern about it, but it was the top issue among uh, both groups. And so uh, some of that outcome, I think we can see not just in Texas, but maybe around the country and, and why it was uh, so divided. And I think there's other reasons for that as well, but it could have been along, along those lines that the, the, the race, the election was much closer because I think right now we're standing at maybe about 4 million votes that separate in the national vote count. We're looking at it that way. Uh, and you're talking about hundred and almost 145 million that cast their ballot. That, that's a very close margin. Uh, even still at, at 4 million. Uh, so there, there was something there that was, that, 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 that's one of the factors that, that seems to me. Casey, do you see other things in, in this that influenced uh, voting turnout and, and the, the election as we see it, uh, as it's uh, uh, transpired this week and, and we see it developing? Uh, yeah, on the, on the national level, uh, there's quite a few things, and some of them are, are rather small, but, you know, I think they may be impactful. The one that I think is one of the most interesting ones, there's eight states that had uh, legalization of drugs or decriminalization of drugs uh, on as ballot measures, and I think that may have driven uh, some voter turnout. Uh, not all of them were strictly on marijuana. There were some that actually were on other drugs as well. Uh, whether it was uh, magic mushrooms, I think was the phrase that was being used uh, in, in Oregon. And so uh, there were a lot of other components that I don't think are really considered in driving the factors. As far as the, the economy versus healthcare thing, I think we're seeing that on the, on the national level as well. When you're talking about historic turnout, which I think should be celebrated, regardless of which side of the politics anybody winds up being on or the outcome of the election. When we start getting up into 140 million-ish kind of range, you know, that's that's better numbers than we have seen in the last few uh, presidential election cycles. And I think the engagement uh, really has been driven uh, by by folks' concern falling down on the lines of the economy and the healthcare. I do think the mail-in ballot thing, we will be able to look back uh, history and, and the extension of early voting here in Texas specifically uh, as factors that made voting more available. And so we had a higher participation because of it. So following on that and, and, and trying to look at... Um... This, this massive turnout, okay, that's, that's significant. So you had people engaged, uh, but uh, that engagement, as we've mentioned around different topics or different issues that they saw were more pressing or even maybe state or local level issues that uh, uh, should be, that, that are factors as well. Um, 
what what do you when we look at this and we look at the 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 small separation, you know, and the, the four million votes right now between Republicans and Democrats when we're talking about the presidency. Uh, some of that will vary more on, on on state levels as well, but but that that kind of tells us some things about our country, kind of the state of politics, and 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 I think in some way it affirms some things that we already knew uh, because we could see it in the way government has been working or not working. But then also on the other hand, it, it maybe it tells us I think some some things going forward. Uh, and uh, one one of the things that stands out to me uh, really in all of this, and that that there was an attempt to make an, a, a point about the presidency of Donald Trump and focusing on his behavior and on uh, just the way he. Uh, uh, you know, carries himself, the way he engages with people. There were issues made about some of the things he said about people in a derogatory manner, the way he's conducted himself as a, as a world leader. Uh, I think one of the same things we see in the, in the turnout here is that that was not a significant factor, uh, that, that it, to me, it looks like that people were voting more along the lines of issues, which is uh, true of elections in the past, but you had this additional dynamic of the person of Donald Trump. And, and it's, it, it really seems like that a, a lot of, of, of his, uh, it's not just his base, which, you know, some were saying, well, he, he, some of that peeled off, he was going to lose some of this here and there. That doesn't seem to be significant. It seemed that he actually gained in some areas. That could be because turnout is much, was much higher uh, than it was in 2016. Uh, but that's one of the things that I don't necessarily see had a had a huge impact. And we were going into this election with a lot of people saying, look, uh, people are just not going to vote for Donald Trump because they don't, uh, they just don't like how he does the job of president in terms of his, his demeanor, his, his, just the way that he's dealt with, uh, um, people, not, not necessarily the issues, but it seems like people stayed with policy. They stayed with issues. They stayed with direction. What they see are the, are most important and, and who, that they thought would be the person to lead the country forward in addressing those critical issues. I don't know if you have uh, anything uh, to add to that, or, or or you might might not agree with that analysis, which is you know part of this of us offering our different perspectives. But you may also see some other things that tell us a little more about where people are politically in in the country as a whole. Casey, I'll throw this one to you first. Well, I, I will jump off of what you were saying there, uh, you know, as far as the personality component uh, of the candidates for president, uh, there are a lot of people that uh, love Trump's approach to things. In fact, he got more votes this time than he did last time. Uh, and then there's a lot of folks that are very put off by his personal approach to things. I think maybe on his side, personality may have played uh, a more significant role. There certainly is the policy issues, but you don't have the kind of rallies and the kind of fervent base that he has based on fiscal policy. That's not what gets people excited and make them put flags you know, on, on, on their house. It's personality uh, that drives those kind of things. So I think from his solid, from, from his actual base component, that uh, did, certainly didn't go down any. Uh, I think when you start looking at the the, the really late-breaking voters or the, the very more independent-minded voters, that 5 or 10% personality could certainly play a little bit there. But that's where I think we saw the policy issues really come to the top. And it really was, I, I think as Marcy was referencing earlier also, that uh, you have to deal with the healthcare issues first, and then you can deal with the economy or you deal with the economy and manage the healthcare problems that come along with it. And it really, I think, comes down to, uh, for most voters, uh, is it a parallel approach or a serial approach uh, of how you deal with healthcare and the economy? Do you do them at the same time, which causes bigger health issues, or do you solve the health problem first and then turn to uh, the economy? So there, there was a lot of attention given to what were called silent Trump voters. And so people who, uh, the, there was this anticipation that, that by the Trump campaign that these people would turn up at the elections, they would vote, but they weren't willing to indicate 
before the election publicly or in, in, in opinion uh, polling and so forth to, to, to where their uh, their vote might lie. And, and I think that that may have some uh, uh, fact behind it in seeing uh, of the turnout because you, you it seems to that on election day, and now we're seeing it because you, you see the, the discouragement Trump gave to voting by mail. So now as those votes by mail are being counted and it's switching uh, outcomes in states like Georgia and Pennsylvania, uh, that that there was this strong surge on election day that that really had the numbers off. I mean, th the fact that Ohio had a larger margin than Texas uh, in the outcome shows us that there's some there were some things going on on election day that just weren't anticipated. Uh, and, and Marcy, I don't know if you, do you see any of those uh, those other things things that kind of were central issues there that impacted did that that turnout and that that demonstrate kind of where we are politically in the country th th those kinds of factors that maybe surprised us a little bit or or we we are were affirmed by what happened on Tuesday right well I'll start off with turnout and I think both the Democrats and the Republicans turned out and in larger numbers so what you were suggesting about maybe the silent supporters of Trump I think they did come out to vote and we saw that, so we had increased numbers of voters, which was comprised of people for both parties. Um, so there was that element as well. I think that the election was not an absolute affirmative for either candidate, basically. But it's interesting, CNN conducted some exit polls and they interviewed people who were coming out of the polls and they also looked at some early voting returns and absentee ballot returns. So what they found was, interestingly, the reason why people voted for particular candidates, the people who voted for Trump, 65% of those people said they were voting for him. So the majority voted for Trump. People who voted for Biden, 73% of those said they were voting against the, their opponent. So they're voting against Trump, but voting for Biden. So I do think um, there was some kind of referendum on Trump within the voters according to these polls. Now, interestingly, within those people who voted for Trump, we're seeing that actually fewer white men voted for Trump on the margin than they did in 2016. So actually, when you compare how Trump did in 2016 with white men, it actually went down his percentage of elite. But with other ethnic groups, it went up which is fascinating because it, that's kind of the opposite that you might think uh, because it does seem like many uh, people within the base, the Republican base are, are white males and just it's generally understood that we had something going on here, as you mentioned, with more people voting for Trump who were different ethnic groups than white. So on that, uh Focusing on that and on the, the makeup of the electorate for that voted on either side in terms of the presidential election, uh, there seemed to be this this uh, line of thinking and, and, and analysis leading up to the election, and and really started early on in the Trump presidency that as he he went along, he was narrowing his base, that he was alienating certain groups of people and that those people would slowly start either peeling off or no matter what the, who the candidate was. And I think you pointed out, we may have seen a, a lack of candidate enthusiasm here again, not to the degree we saw with Hillary Clinton in 2016, uh, but, but that, that, that either was countered by turnout and the fact that, that Trump did enlarge his base among people who may not have voted for him in 2016, but may not have voted at all and then said, hey, I'm, I'm voting and I'm gonna vote for Donald Trump in this election. But these inroads into uh, among Hispanics and African-Americans and, and, and other groups is also very interesting as well. And, and it, a part of that, I, on, on my part, and this is analysis I'll offer, is attributing it to uh, the, Trump's messaging uh, in terms of the Democratic Party and Democratic leadership and if you think about it, especially among Hispanics, and we can talk more about this in, in, in Texas in the uh, latter half of the show, but uh, when you talk about successive generations, 
you know, some of those people are not as knowledgeable of, of politics going back 30 years or 40 years in terms of, of, of Joe Biden's career and uh, looking at his, his role and, and what he's done as a senator and then as vice president. I mean, we know that in our classes, I mean, how limited just among our students in general, you know, that, that okay, how aware they are, of what's influenced us to get to the point where we are or what's the background story you really need to understand the full context. And I think that's, that, that some of those uh, uh, inroads and that, that gains that, that Trump made in this election were connecting with those people and the narrative that he was providing was just much more effective and much stronger. Now, he still didn't get the majority of vote among those groups, but he, he made enough of a, of an, of, he made progress, he, he gained and, and that gain, as we know with previous elections, can be just enough to get you over the top. And we don't know at this point uh, uh, if that's sufficient or not, but the fact that he did make some gains there and that we see it in Texas. Texas didn't go blue as, again, we've said previous elections, people are looking at this. So uh, before we turn on, because I want to ask a question in this segment about the, the impact of the pandemic, but before we get to that, I didn't know if, if either of you had anything to say in terms of that effectiveness of what Trump was saying and what he was trying to connect with with people across the country uh, in comparison to Joe Biden. Um, not really the message, but I will say the ground game. So I think he was making his message clearer and that he was getting out there holding rallies, canvassing neighborhoods. And so it was more of a grassroots effort which Joe Biden did not have. And understandably, there were concerns about the contact. But I, I do think for this election, the Republicans' campaign was much more effective. Casey, did you have any comment on that as well? You do see that with some of the different demographics. Uh, Florida, I think, is where you could see it probably as much as anywhere else. Uh, the the Cuban uh, descendant population uh, in in Florida uh, really made some big changes, especially in the Miami-Dade uh, region, where didn't win them, but made a tremendous impact, uh, tremendous gain in the in the population, which shifted a lot of the percentages. Uh, and so I think we we've not only seen it there, we've seen it a little bit in Texas, but there are certainly areas to where you can look at and say first-time voters. Uh, he made a tremendous impact there. Other uh, racial demographic groups made a tremendous impact there uh, to where the the coalition uh, of the folks that were coming under the Republican, at least for the presidency uh, voting, uh, is different than we have seen in, in, uh, in cycles in the past. So let's let's bring in the pandemic. Uh, this this was one of the major issues that was seen to have uh, potentially have an impact on the outcome of this election. Uh, it was a, certainly a part of the messaging of Joe Biden and a part of his strategy to say that we're in the position that we are as a country and in dealing with the pandemic because of the way uh, that it has been managed by the Trump administration. Um, there, there, there are certainly some challenges there, and and I, my thing with this is, and, and maybe if if Trump doesn't win this election, I'm going to go back to my thesis about federalism and how Trump doesn't necessarily understand that he did in his minute is the way he conducted his administration. If he'd have had a little bit more engagement there, if he'd have sat in on one of our classes when that week that we covered federalism that uh, it may have been to his benefit uh, in understanding how the, all this works and doesn't work together. But, but getting back to the, the pandemic there, um, uh, I don't, I, I know there's exit polling and so on that shows that there was a certain segment concerned about it, but it, it wasn't enough uh, to, to give this uh, uh, victory to one candidate or the other overwhelmingly. I mean, it, in, 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 in that way, you would think, okay, it would be a Biden win because of the pandemic, because of, but, but if Biden wins this, I don't know that you can say that uh, because of the turnout and because of the, the number of votes and how close this race was in so many states. Uh, my question is, I guess here, why was that not a factor? Uh, and wh what what do you see are some of the, the reasons why maybe people uh, did not have that on their minds uh, when they were going to, to, to cast their vote? Casey, any thoughts on that? Uh, well, the... 
we see a tremendous discrepancy between the early voting results and the in-person results. I mean, and some of that was brought on by the candidates themselves. Uh, but I saw earlier this week a, a report that came out that every, all of the mail-in ballots, all of the early voting, the mail-in version of the ballots were leaning towards Biden in all the states except the Dakotas. And and so there's a tremendous skew between uh, the populations that chose to vote uh, by mail-in ballot and the populations that chose to show up and vote on election day, and that that dynamic I think is something we're going to have to study for for years to come uh, to see what the if is that what made the difference in the election the the overall turnout and what was the motivating factors if it was strictly based on uh, fear of illness, then that is the pandemic raising its its head here in this election and really driving uh, perhaps the total outcome uh, of the election. Uh, but I, I think that's that's one of those next year full calculation of where everything fell and how it got played out kind of questions that have to be answered to really know what the, the impact the pandemic has had. But it, it could be dramatic. Right, right. And we're seeing that develop. And I guess that outcome of the election in and of itself, and what those margins are, uh, may, uh, may help to see that. Uh, again, we could come back and I think it's going to be getting maybe more in the weeds, like you're saying with uh, a state like Texas or Ohio, I mean, seeing that Texas margin was closer uh, than some other states for, for, like I said before, for different reasons. But uh, uh, if all of those states end up being in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, and Nevada, there may be a, a thread that runs through that in terms of what uh, uh, what impact it did have. Like you're saying on, on mail-in voting. Marcy, did you have any reflections on that in terms of the, the impact of the pandemic on this election? Well, I was thinking about it in the context of Texas. So here in the state, we see that about 6% of the votes that were submitted were absentee ballots, which is higher than it usually is. Normally it's under 5%. So we did see a pickup in people voting through absentee ballots, which goes along with concern about the pandemic and opting not to go to the polls, or that could be because of people taking the chance to vote and the opportunity to vote, because there was a lot more media attention given to absentee ballots. Whereas before, you know, something that's there but unless you are really interested in it, you may not know that you have that option to vote absentee if you meet the requirements that we have here in the state. So of course, that was the big issue, especially in the more populated counties like Harris County where Houston is, are we going to change how we approach absentee balloting? And there were court cases going back and forth. Can people vote using absentee ballots who are afraid of catching COVID-19 and do not want to go to the polls because the masks were not required at the polls. So should we give them a chance to vote absentee was a big question. So I think there's a lot of information out there about the process of people were voting absentee more often in this election due to the pandemic. And in Houston as well, we have the drive-through voting opportunities uh, that they had and eventually closed down for election day because of lawsuits going back and forth about can people just pull up in their car and have a voting machine wheeled out to them instead of going into the polls. And so yeah, there were a lot of issues that we saw during the election here in Texas that were brought about because of the pandemic. So that's a great segue into our looking at this more specifically to the state of Texas. I am speaking with Casey Thompson and Marcy Reynolds, faculty here at Tarleton State for our uh, regular political roundtable and analysis and offering analysis on the 2020 election. So before we shift to Texas, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back for more on politics. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. 
Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and we want to remind you that as we broadcast on KTRL 90.5 FM on Sundays at noon, you can also listen to us at tarletonradio.com. And then after the show, you can look us up on SoundCloud, where you'll hear, hear a recording of this show as well as previous shows. And also you can download the show via podcast at Amazon or other uh, options that you may have uh, for a podcast. So we're turning to the in the second half of the show to look at Texas in the 2020 election. And as uh, if you've been listening to the show or if you're just now joining us, I'm joined by uh, Marcy Reynolds and Casey Thompson, our regular roundtable participants in, in analyzing what happened on Tuesday. We are recording this in advance of, of the show airing on Sunday at noon. So we know that there are certain outcomes that we don't have yet and that'll be developing uh, over the next few days. But uh, this is still a chance for us to look back and see what happened. And we do have outcomes in Texas. We do know how uh, the vote uh, has, has wrapped up while there may be some uh, provisional ballots and things like that, they're being examined. We usually know those are a small number in Texas. Uh, one of the things that we can say about Texas is that uh, the state seemed to stay the course, uh, that when we're looking at this and, and what's uh, uh, what happened in, on Tuesday is that while some predicted Texas would move further uh, along that spectrum of becoming blue, uh, if not achieve that in some way, uh, that, that that really didn't happen. And it was the turnout that has happened in 2016 and 2012. We can go back where we've been talking about for two decades about Texas turning blue. And then we have an election like this and we go, whoa, wait a minute, uh, what actually happened here? Some of the impact was due to, I think, turnout, like we've already talked about, that turnout was uh, overwhelming while not the largest ever in Texas. We still are going to see Texas as one of the states that has the lowest turnout, uh, I think, in this, this election cycle, even though our turnout was higher than it, than it normally is. Uh, but we saw a lot of early voting in Texas. Uh, that, that option was used extensively throughout the state uh, with, a, with almost two-thirds of the vote uh, that was done early before uh, election day. Uh, so in turning to Texas and really trying to understand uh, what happened here, I mean, it's, at one point in the in the polls, uh, it was even between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. That that changed as we got closer to Election Day and certainly changed on Election Day. But again, the, the, the race for Senate, uh, the uh, House districts that seem to be very close uh, that may turn blue. Uh, all of this just did not materialize uh, for Democrats uh, in the state of Texas. And so, uh, Marcy, Casey, uh, we teach Texas government. Uh, we're writing a textbook on Texas government, uh, which uh, we thought about doing a show on that, but that might not be as interesting <laughs> as talking about uh, the election this week. Uh, but what, when you look at this and you look at what happened in, in, in our state, uh, what are some of the things that you see uh, that this tells us about the electorate in the state, about uh, where, we, where we're going with this politically? This has a huge impact on the state legislature uh, this next session and really kind of maintaining things the way they are. We have a redistricting process that's coming up now after the 2020 census that will be controlled by Republicans uh, in the state legislature. Uh, significant implica implications, not just in the short term, but the long term for the state as well. Uh, Marcy, I'll turn to you. Uh, 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 you're I know you're teaching Texas government this semester, and this was something that we've had our eyes on in terms of what would happen and what it tells us about Texas politics. Absolutely. I just heard a lot of noise and um, headlines about Texas turning blue and different races to watch. And when it all fell out, pretty much we have the same party distribution in the Texas legislature that we had before. And all statewide elected officials are Republicans, just as they have been since around 2000. So really, we didn't see the change that was anticipated. And I think a lot of it was driven by expecting these suburban populations to flip. 
to start voting more towards uh, the Democratic candidate. And we did see some of that. But as mentioned in the first segment, we also saw that Trump went up in his margins for people supporting him in all groups except white men. So we didn't see it change as much as anticipated. And going back again to what I said in the first segment about the choice that you had between a focus on the economy and jobs versus the social issues in particular healthcare, we see that maybe the jobs resonated more with people who were concerned who lost their jobs because of the pandemic. And so they were turning that way. And what I find so interesting about this is for generations, the Democratic Party has been the party that would speak to the working class. And we see that that has been part of the coalition that has strengthened the Democratic Party. But now we see maybe a turning away where the Republicans are appealing to the working classes and those people who are concerned about jobs. So I think it's very interesting. I'm not sure if we're having a realignment yet, but it, it's evolving. And um, of course, just within our political subculture and the dominance of the Republican Party here in the state, it's not a huge surprise that they have remained in power. And yet I think we're seeing a shifting of the coalitions within the parties. I think you're, you're onto something there and we're seeing it across the country. I mean, when you, when you talk about the blue wall and, and here you had Biden that gained back Michigan and Wisconsin, and what are the factors that went into that? If he wins Pennsylvania, then we might say, okay, there's a little bit of a blue wall there, but he lost Ohio by so much uh, that it raises uh, 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 concerns about kind of the traditional approach at looking at uh, kind of social classes, and, and maybe we've got to factor more in regionalism. And one of the reasons why I asked that, Casey, and in, in turning to you, is you had in the third debate, you had this discussion between Trump. We, had, we did have a little bit more of a discussion, I think, in the third debate uh, than we did in the first one, but it but it got into energy and, and, and Biden's comments about uh, oil and gas. Uh, I, you know, that hits home in Texas. I don't know if that, if you think that had any effect or not, uh, in terms of, of the vote in the state, uh, along with other, other factors. But what, what do you see are some of those things that uh, really help Trump uh, win Texas, as well as the Republican Party? I mean, to see that the Republican Party maintain the uh, control of the state uh, in terms of the state legislature and, uh, and elected offices. And, and it, was, it, it was, I don't think it was anywhere close what it was thought that the turnout would be. Uh, yeah, starting kind of at the at the big picture thing, and then and then drilling down a little bit. Uh, both political parties are kind of suffering an identity crisis right now. The Republicans are having their own identity crisis between the the kind of pro business, but uh, the the more moderate type of uh, Republican, and now we have the more libertarian and the more worker. Uh, class that's starting to, to arise, and there's a struggle there that's happening. The Democrat Party's having a similar identity crisis between the the traditional moderates that Joe Biden kind of represented, and what people will refer to kind of as the Kennedy Democrat version, and and the more progressive ones that we see coming to power. And so, both sides are having an identity crisis that I think is making some folks swap over. And so there is that realignment. Uh, I think that's occurring uh, at the big picture level. Now, when you when you come down to Texas, uh, uh, there were there were a couple of places. You know, the House seat, uh, District 14 and District 26, were both targeted uh, by the Democrats to try and uh, think they had an opportunity to, to either win in the case of 26 or flip uh, in 14, and and they weren't successful on either one. Uh, and so there was this uh, this talk about the evolution, and there has been some changes. Uh, you know, there's not too long ago that it was a pretty solid two thirds, one third in the House, and you would have uh, a 99 or 100 uh, on the Republican side and uh, 50 or 51 on the Democrat side. And now we're down, you know. Uh, 8763 kind of territory. So there's there's been some movement, but still solidly 
uh, on on Republican side of control. Uh, and, and I think we're actually going to see it probably in the Texas, the, the speakership uh, change uh, probably in this cycle also uh, because of it, which has some of that same identity struggle uh, that we've seen at the national level and we're seeing in Texas also. So, so talking about that in terms of the impact on the legislature, uh, we mentioned the 2020 census. We now will have a redistricting process. We've known in the last two of these, it's been very contentious uh, because of uh, the uh, challenges between a uh, Republican-led process in Texas. And then, of course, these always move into the federal courts because the focus when you have that party control is on districting in a way that help you to maintain that, that edge. Um, I, one thing I, I would say, there, well, there's two things here. One is, uh, could we maybe not see as contentious a process uh, if Republicans come in and, and, the, and the boundaries may s stay close to what they are now? We know they'll change some because of demographic changes, but one of the things we saw here, especially in, in, in even in district races that encompass some blue areas, that um, this idea that the suburbs of a, a particular area, like you look around Austin and you go to, you know, North uh, 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 Williamson County and you look at some of the other areas around there, well, the, the, the county as a whole may have gone blue, but there were enough votes still within those areas uh, among Republicans uh, to help uh, the, uh, the incumbents carry some of those districts uh, with combined with the rural vote. And so if you're looking at that and you're going, well, wait a minute, these, these suburbs are not turning blue. I mean, they're, 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 the, the district as a whole in that area of it may be blue, but there's enough vote there to still maintain these districts. That, that seems to be an advantage to Republicans going into this redistricting, redistricting process. Uh, I don't know if, you, if you, you see that as well, or if you might see other changes or trends there, uh, Casey, that might lead to a, a kind of a revamping of this, of this whole system. Uh, as we go into the next redistricting cycle. Well, I, I appreciate your optimism that hopefully it'll be less contentious. Uh, I'm not sure that I share it just yet. Uh, it, you know, the, the power that's in charge always wants to be the power that's in charge. Uh, and they will, they will try and redraw the lines uh, to, to make that match. Now, there's not a whole, the, the good news is there's really not a whole lot of fiddling here that they can do. Uh, the, the lines, as you were saying, that you know the districts as they are, are fairly set, and so we're going to have a little bit of shifting. Uh, I, I the Republicans are going to have challenges because the urban areas and where are where the growth is going to be, and so where the redistricting has occurred has probably is going to be more in the urban areas than it is anywhere else. Uh, with a lot of folks uh, moving into the state uh, from other places. And, and so that's where the, the fights are really going to be. And, and I think we're going to see some rather interesting lines uh, try to get drawn to try and dilute some of the urban areas and combine them with some of the more rural area to uh, try and, and, and force them to, if not Republican controlled, closer to Republican controlled uh solid areas going forward so I, I think we can expect some of those lawsuits that you mentioned for for years to come maybe uh, we'll have it solved before the next election uh but maybe just barely <laughs> well marcy when we, we're looking at at some of the the population shifts they've they continue to happen in specific areas i mean the the state demographer has has continued to show that there are, are areas that are growing by leaps and bounds in the state, and then there are other areas that, that uh, are not. And, and so the, Casey's right, the target is going to be in these areas where there are population shifts and how you can absorb that into uh, surrounding districts. And uh, so in, in regard to that, in terms of, of this election, um, do, you, do you see any like optimism here that, that Democrats may be able to have going forward. What what do they build on? If we're looking at this just in a political environment, and we see now that okay, well, Republicans are firmly in control at least uh, for two years in the in the uh, state legislative cycle. Uh, we've got a, a 
we'll have a general election in two years for governor and other statewide offices. Um, when we look at, at party affiliation in the state and strategies that they've used going into this election, which large gains were hoped for, do you see any direction or, or uh, uh, where the focus can be going forward? Or is this, is this the, the end, you know, which, which we hate to say that in politics. We know events change, things change. Six months from now, we could be looking at a whole different scenario. But right now, it, it, it looks a little bleak uh, because you've had two election cycles where you had uh, you had Beto O'Rourke, who seemed to be making a run at a Senate seat. And of course, that fell short. You, you, you had Wendy Davis in her run for governor. I mean, we can go back and we can see over and over again, it's close, it's just not enough. And is that what we can expect or is there is there a way forward here to see how uh, party politics may change in the state? Well, I, I wish I could be positive and, and throw out something for the Democrats in the state. But uh, the most positive thing I can think to say at the moment is the presumptive speaker of the Texas House. Now he has not been voted in, but the day after the election, Dave Phelan said that he had a, a majority, over a majority of the representatives from the House who would support him as speaker, All right? And that included Democrats and Republicans. And of course, the Re Democrats have an interest in working with the House speaker in, in order to form relationships and to have some kind of influence. And the thing that I see that is positive perhaps for the Democrats is that Dave Phelan is not a member of the Freedom Caucus. And the Freedom Caucus is that subgroup of representatives who are more on the extreme conservative end. Uh, it's part of an outgrowth of the Tea Party Caucus, very limited government. Um, think uh, Dan Patrick, you know, was influential in that on the Senate side. So I think that, you know, this, if he is the House Speaker, it seems like he doesn't have as many irons in the fire on the extreme end, and maybe he would be more willing to work with Democrats. But of course, we've seen that for about 20 years now, we've been acting under this program that was a national-wide, nationwide program that was promoted by Republicans. It was called the Red Map where they were invested in who was winning the state districts. And so the state legislature would turn Republican. And then after they turned Republican, they could redraw district lines in order to benefit the congressional delegation moving forward for federal policy. And they were very successful. It was a brilliant strategy. And so we see many of the state legislatures now are, are controlled by Republicans. And maybe they would have been to an extent anyway, but I think it certainly helped. And again, with this election, with the results, we see those state houses that were Republican are still Republican. We didn't have much of a change at the other state levels as well. So I, you know, it's a really good question. I would like to think that maybe there were, could be some working together and moving towards the middle for both parties to work together on redrawing these district, uh, district maps. Just I recall earlier uh, when the Democrats left the state in order to not be forced to vote on the district maps. Um, not have that again. I don't know, but uh, it's a good question. Casey, you had a few things you wanted to add as well. Yeah, I was gonna jump in there and, and reinforce uh, what Marcy was saying. Uh, coming into the election, there there has been this strategy a little bit on both sides, but certainly on the Republican side of playing the long game and going for the, the state uh, chambers. And so coming into this election and things haven't changed a lot uh, since then, uh, you, you you have to take Nebraska out because they're Unitarian and, and Alaska also has some kind of weird coalition thing that they do. But uh, with those two out, uh, Republicans controlled 59 of the state uh, chambers and Democrats controlled 39 of the state chambers. And so there has been this slow evolution of the Republican Party taking over at the state levels in order to influence the redistricting that's coming up here with the census results in order to maybe then influence the federal elections in the next cycle. Uh, and so, you know, you really see it when, you, when you're talking about 59 to 39 on a headcount uh, of chamber control. 
that it's gonna uh, that's something to watch going forward for you know the real political wonks uh. well also building on what marcy said as well uh and thank you both for the analysis there uh, in in the selection of speaker uh in in the way that this election has turned out and in the direction it's moving uh we've got some tough issues to tackle in this state uh right now during the pandemic uh, economic issues uh the challenges in continuing to 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 fund education with the additional expenses that the pandemic has uh, challenged, has, has offered. Um, I just know real quick, if you think we're moving in a direction uh, back towards the pragmatism that we once saw, is this maybe a, an initial step in that direction with a speaker uh, that might be more uh, engaged in saying, hey, let's, let's solve some problems here. Uh, and not so much ideologically uh, driven to the point of it's not about the solution. It's more about do we maintain our line of, of thinking on this? Uh, uh, maybe, again, I'm being too optimistic here, but we can we can always hope. I don't know if you, we got a minute left here. I don't know if you had any just quick thoughts on that. Marcy? Oh, well, you know, George W. Bush won both the governorship and the presidency with part of his campaign saying he can reach across the aisle. So I don't know if that was relevant you know, 20 years ago. Maybe it could be relevant again. Casey, any thoughts as we close I the show? I would say, you know, pragmatism kind of gets forced on people. They don't choose it. They'll choose to go to their ideological ends. But I, I think we're going to be faced with having to do some pragmatic choices uh, with not only the extra expenses from the pandemic, but the loss of revenue. Uh, you know, we're going to have a tremendous hit here because of sales tax revenue uh, being down. And so when you have extra expenses and less money, you got to start being more pragmatic than ideological. And so I, I think they're going to be kind of forced into uh, some cooperation. Thank you both for joining me again today on our political roundtable and analyzing the election. There'll be more to analyze in the weeks ahead. And so I look forward to having you join us again right here on politics. Thank you for our listeners today and please join us each week here at noon on KTRL 90.5 FM. Carlson Radio Network podcast with production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Carlson Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.